Ladies. The energy, see essence, you inhale the presence The air in your lung, that's the first step to blessing You're a priest, you're a king on the mountain climbing Are you up, are you down, doesn't matter, take your crown The energy, see essence, you inhale the presence Air in your lungs, that's the first step to blessing You're a priest, you're a king on the mountain climbing Are you up, are you down, doesn't matter, take your crown So you looked in the bucket, you saw a giant mass of crabs They were clawing at each other, slicing, dicing Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you are tuned in to the Lowry Podcast. I'm your host, Monk. We are back at it with another episode. Again, go get my book, Reclaiming the Man, A Rough Guide to Knowing Your Divine Self on Amazon. And uh, you can check out anything we're doing uh, on social media. We're actually not super active on social media, but follow us on the podcast space or on Apple um, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you listen to podcasts, we are there. Uh, this one relates to if you are following with the podcast, this is a follow-up or it's a good partner episode with a former episode we did called Bible Decoder, The World is Redeemed, so why don't we experience it? So if you haven't listened to that episode you could follow along with this one and still get a lot out of it, but the fall, the episode I just mentioned would give you a little more context as to what we are talking about in this one. So I will relate this uh, one thing. So I've gotten this question a ton over the years. And particularly though, I got this question again, and it's it's more it's not even really a question. It's more of a a stance or a way of viewing the world, scripture, Christianity, and other things. And I got it and engaged in this discussion with an individual who I assumed thought differently. And it kind of surprised me because some of these concepts seem kind of basic and kind of the building blocks to other things, ideas, themes, and beliefs that I personally have, but things we can get into when we study spiritual mysteries and things of that nature. And uh, the question is, or the concept, the theme we are going to be exploring is, was Adam, was humanity cursed way back in the Garden of Eden? And this is essential in your understanding of scripture of the Bible, but even if you are not a believer, this ancient text and the patterns and the themes that are explored in this ancient text were shared in other ancient cultures that were happening around the same time were telling similar stories. So whether you're a believer or not, you can get a lot out of this because some of this storytelling gets to both the core of human history and how stories were told, but also the archetypes involved relate to problems, patterns, and themes we still see playing out today. And that's regardless of your belief system, regardless of your religious paradigm or lack thereof. And I'm not judging you one way or another. All I'm asking is whatever you're coming into the playing field with, listen to this with an open mind and an open heart. And if you have questions, 
let me know and we can sit down and have this discussion because I'm going to come to you with an open mind and open heart too because truth is truth is truth is truth and that's all we're looking for at the end of the day and if we're closed down we could be planted and exposed to the 100% pure undiluted truth and it be presented to us right in front of our faces but if we're closed off to it we won't even realize it so was Adam was humanity cursed way back in the Garden of Eden. What's gotten me into a little trouble has been my contention that no, Adam was not cursed. Eve was not cursed. Humanity was not cursed way back in the Garden of Eden. During what we call the fall, there were the serpent was cursed and the ground was cursed. And that's my contention, but that opens up a can of worms. But let's go right to the text. So we're going to be in a few places in this talk, in this exploration today. We're going to be in Genesis 3, Genesis 4, Leviticus 10. We're going to jump back to Genesis 2, verse 15, to look at a pattern that is established that runs throughout the Bible and then we'll be back in some famous are the famous verses of John 3:16 and going on from there. But uh first turn with me or scroll with me to Genesis 3 and we are going to start in verse 13. Genesis 3:13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, "What is this that you have done?" And the woman said, "The serpent deceived me and I ate." The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing and pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So what I want to point out, there's a whole lot going on there in that passage. So let's just break down a few of the dynamics. You know, I'll put the emphasis on the word curse. So in verse 13, this is an important phrase God says in Genesis 3.13. And um, he says, what is it that you have done? Or, oh, Eve, oh, baby, oh, child, what have you done? And you can think of that in terms of like when your own child, those of you who are parents, they do something they probably shouldn't have done. And you're just like, oh, no, what have you done? This is not good, but it's out of love. And this is a cue, though, because this phrase gets repeated constantly throughout the Bible, particularly in the Torah and the first five books of the Bible. 
and it gets repeated a ton in Genesis. So pay attention to that phrase because when you see that phrase written in other places, those authors are trying to refer you back to this moment. What have you done? You thought you were doing good, but you did not. So just remember that. Keep that in your back pocket because we're going to see this phrase again soon. Okay. So in verse 14, uh, right, the Lord tells the serpent, because you use, so let, let's break this down a couple concepts here. And it's something you got to understand ancient cosmology, the ancient worldview at the time, serpents represented spiritual beings or beings that had a wisdom beings that possibly came from another realm. They weren't in an origin of earth and we're not going to get into the whole alien conspiracy theory here but here the serpent was a wise being some type of spiritual being represented someone that had wisdom or secret insider knowledge and was preying upon the innocence of adam and eve and so the serpent having this divine knowledge instead of using it to build things because the serpent did not understand the heart of God, the serpent was contrary to God. Instead of using that knowledge to build things and make the world a better place, instead he uses it to stir up some trouble, stir the pot. It doesn't matter if he like hurts Adam and Eve, but if he gets them to consent, the, you know, the cat is out of the bag, so to speak. And so, um, because of this, right, in verse 14, cursed are you above all livestock, okay? And when he mentions the word dust there, you can do a study on the word dust. That word dust, again, super loaded, rich term there. If you study it out, all the patterns uh, connected to it and even the word, what it means and how it relates to all these different things throughout both the Old and New Testaments. Um <clears throat> It says, but um, verse 15, I'll put in between between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, referring to the woman's offspring, but you shall bruise his heel. And we have this image of Christ standing on the head of the serpent later. You know, so the enmity... It's not between Adam and the serpent. The Adam, the the enmity, the enmity, the cause and effect that we're having here is going to be between their children and this serpent, this deceiver, this accuser, right? And to the woman, he said, "I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you." So. Um, that phrase, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, it does not mean like, oh, like now now having children is going to be painful, this, this super painful, risky process. What that means um, in the understanding and the patterns related to the words that are used there, what it really means is just your children are going to do things that are hard, that break your heart, that are hard for you kind of just like what Adam and Eve did to God's heart. That's what that meant. And then it also sets up this pattern of, you know, earlier they were given this command to be fruitful and multiply. Now the way this pattern works is that they'll have some fruit, but there will be some times where the wombs of these women are actually not fruitful and they don't multiply and 
there's another pattern biblically that is established through that, which you can study that out. You you know, you look at Sarah and Abraham, right? Baron Sarah aged has a miracle baby. You know, you, you have the one with, um, when John the Baptist is born, Elizabeth and Zechariah, again, a barren older woman. You have the issues between Leah and Rachel, the sisters. One is fruitful, one is not. And then one finally is fruitful, and it causes a whole lot of drama. So, again, another pattern is established here. But in that, the text says nothing about Eve being cursed. It just says, hey, because of this thing you've done, here is the, the effect of it. It's different than being cursed, okay? And he says to Adam, verse 17, um, he goes down and says, cursed is the ground because of you, right? He was, and we'll get into why the ground is cursed because he was actually given a command about what he was supposed to do with the ground earlier in chapter two, which we will go back and look at in a second. But in all of that, Never are Adam and Eve cursed. The ground is cursed. It's right there in the text. And the serpent is cursed. Now, Eve has some effects she has to live through. Adam has some effects he has to live through. And so I could give it to you this way. It would be like if I, for whatever reason, in my mind, I decided I need money. I decided to go rob a bank. I got caught. I go do a bid. Okay, does that mean that I am cursed? No, it does not. But guess what? When I'm in that environment, in prison, having to survive in prison, that's a very, very hard environment to live in. And because of that, I might get caught up in doing what I have to do in those circumstances. And then I start becoming someone I was never supposed to be just out of a survival situation because I keep eating from the wrong tree. This is what Adam and Eve did. They chose to follow wisdom. They chose to seek knowledge outside of God's guidance. God was going to give them the wisdom anyway. People, he walked with them in the cool of the day. The other part of this, the other dynamic of this, and y'all have heard me say this before, was they reached out to grab the fruit at the behest of the serpent because they wanted to be like God, but they were already like God. You know, so like me going and robbing a bank, I have created in my world, in my inner world, the circumstance where this is the only way this thing is going to work out. And since I believe that's the only way I can get the money, Guess what? That's the reality I live out, and now there are consequences because of that. So because now I'm in jail, now I'm in prison because of the thing that I did, and now I'm living in these really hard circumstances, it could look a whole lot like I am cursed. Now, the situation around me, the circumstances around me might be cursed, but I myself am not cursed right? The circumstances might be a result of my bad actions, but I myself am not cursed. I was never cursed to begin with. But because of my choices, I started turning into something I was never meant to be. Okay. So, but Adam and Eve were not cursed. It was the ground 
and it was a serpent. Which you would look at anything that doesn't directly come from God the way we see it. And if we lean or rely on that source is our source of security in whatever phase of our life. That's actually a curse. Yet the thing is, Christ has reversed the curse. And you can go to the New Testament and look at example after example. We're going to look at one in a second. But just throwing one out there, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20. Go read that passage. Uh, it says that God was in Christ reconciling the world. The whole world, the whole cosmos is the word, cosmos is the word that's used there in the Greek, to himself. So all of that has actually been taken care of, but Adam and Eve were never cursed. Humanity was never cursed, but the world around us was subjected to futility because of some bad decisions that the people that came before us made. But let's move on. Let's go to Genesis 4. You know, we have Cain and we have Abel and they get into this little scuffle. Right? So Genesis 4 verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and they were in the field. Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, here's that phrase again. This is interesting. The Lord said, what have you done? Sounds very similar to what he asked Eve after she ate of the fruit. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which is open its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer upon the earth. But this is interesting, right? Because the language here in 4.11, you are cursed from the ground. This is almost a mirror image of the words that God told Adam that he would toil and have to get bread from the sweat of his brow, that he would have to work until the soil by the sweat of his brow. Listen to this. You are cursed from the ground. Same language that was told to Adam which has opened his mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So it goes a step further. Adam, the ground is cursed, and we're going to get into why this ground was cursed for Adam in a second, because he was given another promise, another command in Genesis 2. And by eating of the tree, he violates um, that command, he doesn't take care of the duty and responsibility that God had given him earlier in Genesis 2. But this is even further because now it is, Cain was able to bring yield up from the ground. And you notice the curse of Adam, the curse of the ground for Adam himself had not transferred over to Cain yet. 
because it says earlier in the text that Cain brought forth an offering of fruit of the ground, meaning he was able to harvest and make a living off the grounds. So you can read that in a way that says, oh, Adam's cur- the curse of the ground that was given to Adam actually didn't transfer over to Cain, but Cain grows jealous of his brother, and then we can you, you can get into the nuances of why God didn't accept Cain's sacrifice. That's another rabbit hole we're not going to go down at this time. But um, he, he says this interesting phrase, though, um, in verse 7. If you do not do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well or do good, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is contrary to you or its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And when he asks this question, if you do not do good, it is the same word that is used when Eve looked at the tree and the serpent asked her, is it not good? Right? She saw that it was good as a source of wisdom. Right? Here, Cain is being asked, if you do not do good, if you do not do well, if you do not do good, then sin is crouching at the door. What crouches at the door? On its belly. Hmm. Sounds a whole lot like a serpent. And again, the authors, the biblical authors being inspired, like all of this is woven into the story to trigger your mind, your imagination, to lead you back to what you just read. And so now, verse 11, you are cursed from the ground, which has opened his mouth to receive your brother's blood. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength. Again, almost word for word, the same as what was told to Adam. And then this goes further. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. So he gets kicked out and he has to wander upon the earth. But wait. Didn't Adam and Eve get kicked out of somewhere when they committed the sin of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Oh, yeah, that's right. They were kicked out of Eden. So you see this pattern. The pattern is not that Adam was cursed or Eve was cursed. The pattern was not that if Cain was cursed or Abel was cursed. The pattern and the issue at hand is that you have a choice. You can choose you can choose good or you can choose evil, but what is good in your own eyes, as Cain chose here, God said, if you do not do well or if you do well, I'll be with you. If you do something else, I'll not be. Cain chose to do what was good in his own eyes, which is kill his brother. Adam and Eve chose to do what was good in their own eyes, which was to eat of this tree, which then subjected the ground to futility because they heeded a voice that was not the voice of God, not the voice of their divine origin or their divine blueprint. And this pattern continues over and over throughout the Bible. But here's a really fun one. We'll do one more, and then we'll start making some connections. Go to Leviticus 10. 
Leviticus is the most slept on book in the Bible. I'm telling you, do some study. Look at some patterns. Look at some themes. Look at some archetypes. Look at how this whole thing is designed. And then Leviticus comes from one of those. Well, it will go from being one of these flyover books to where you're like dreading having to read when it comes up in your yearly Bible plan to being one of the most fascinating pieces of literature you've ever looked at. But that's coming from a self-professed Bible nerd. So Leviticus, the 10th chapter, this is Nadab and Abihu, and I don't nearly know how to pronounce their names correctly, but that's all right. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it. So Nadab and Abihu, so right before this, um, so the end of Exodus, um, Moses and God established this place called the Tabernacle of Meeting, and it's where the presence of God is going to hang over the children of Israel as they move throughout the desert. And then this is the place they go to offer sacrifices, and then the presence of God lands over it. Okay. But they need someone to run the tabernacle. So God gives Moses the words to say, Here, you're going to anoint priests. Your brother Aaron is going to the be, be priest and his children and his children's children. They're going to be the line of priests who takes care of the priestly duties, which is basically offer up the sacrifices um, to God on behalf of the people. Because, again, the people don't think they're good enough for God. You know, and that's a whole nother can of worms. But that is what has just happened. So literally like a chapter, two chapters before God and Moses Moses speaking on behalf of God to the people have established Aaron and his sons as priests to minister in the tabernacle of meeting. And they've been given a very specific way and a very, very specific process on how to do things. So now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. So why would God just smoke these two dudes for not doing things in the right order or the right process? Earlier on, you know, we saw Cain choose what is not good. It was good in his own eyes. He did not rule over sin, and he ended up killing his brother. We see Adam and Eve choosing what is not good or what is good in their own eyes. That's the Hebrew word tov. So you have, it's either tov or not tov. But the Hebrew word tov, good, not good. They chose what was good in their own eyes, and it ended up being very not good for themselves or in this sense, their children. Remember, there was going to be enmity between Eve's seed and the serpent? Well, what happened? One brother killed the other brother. There you go. There's the enmity. Think about Eve as a mother having to deal with that situation. The enmity had, between the seed has continued. Now you have Nadab and Abihu, two knuckleheads that have literally just been given a command of this is how you do your job. They walk into the temple. They don't do their job in the way it's been described. They, they decide to do it another way, and then God smokes them. Right, but let's move on because this is really interesting. You're like, really? God just smoked them like that because they did something in a different order or process? What a jerk. 
But look at this little detail here. This is verse 8, Leviticus 8. So right after Nadab and Abihu are in the temple doing something in a different order, a different way, and this fire breaks out and they die, you know, and then the Lord basically tells them, hey, don't mourn them. And Aaron, you can't say anything to anyone about it. He anoints two other priests to replace them and um, gives them the instructions again. And then in verse 8, this is an interesting detail because the patterning of this gives you a hint into what might have actually happened with those two knuckleheads. The Lord spoke to Aaron saying, drink no wine or strong drink. You or your sons with you when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. And it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, the good and the not good, and between the clean and the unclean, again, the good or the not good. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. But, right, his sons go in there. They don't do what they're supposed to do fire breaks out and they die or, <laughs> and they're supposed to be ministering to the Lord. And right after that, God tells Aaron, he says, Hey, listen here, dude, make sure you aren't drunk. When you go do your job, don't go drunk to work. Don't go to work drunk and tell your sons that do not go into the temple and try to do your priestly duties when you've been drinking. So, you coupled that with the situation that just occurred with Nadab and Abihu. They're dealing with highly flammable substances, oils that can catch on fire like that. Boom, sensors, fire, and then all the mystical powers of God resting and residing in that place. Is it any wonder that a fire broke out and they died? Because the subtext or what is suggested here is that they actually got drunk, were irresponsible, and then went in there. Not only, you know, there's this whole argument about they didn't approach the Lord with reverence, which is true, but they, they went to work drunk. They tried to do their work drunk, not sober-minded. They chose a way that was good, right, in their own eyes. Right, unauthorized fire, it says that they were they had been given, which the Lord had not commanded. And what did the Lord not command Adam and Eve to do? What did the Lord not command Cain to do? You see, it's the same pattern. It's the same choice that keeps going on and on and on. So it's not that mankind was cursed or ever was, but there was always this decision point to reach out and choose goodness from God's perspective or choose goodness from your own perspective. And Nadab and Abayu, since they thought like, hey, we're out here in the desert. We got a minister in this temple. There's two million people and they're bringing all these sacrifice sizes and they want this everlasting fire going at all times. Man, it's a lot of work. We can't wait till our shift's over. Oh, when's our shift over? What are we going to do in the meantime? They were probably got drunk. They probably had some work to do. They got in there and it didn't go very well. And God gives them this command that, hey, don't go into the temple drunk. Don't minister to 
to, to me and on behalf of the people drunk because you are not going to be able to discern between good and evil. You're not going to be able to hear my voice to even make that decision if you're in that state. Those two sons, as an example. So, it was never about whether humanity was cursed. It was about what is good to God and what is good to us in our own perception not yielded to him are two entirely different things. And this is why Jesus prays, let thy will not mine be done. When he prays the Lord's prayer or the modern prayer. But I told you there was this pattern that was established that Adam was actually given a different command before the fall. And this is why the ground was cursed for his sake. So look at this in Genesis 2, verse 15. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So that's also um, translated a few different ways. Those words work and to keep. Some translations say it's to till and to tend. Some translations say it's to cultivate and to keep. However, the wording, however you want to translate it, it's the same language that's used when God is describing the duties that the priests have in the temple or in the tabernacle of meeting. Whoa. But that word either to work, to cultivate, or to teal is uh, the Hebrew word avad. And it can mean those things to work, to teal, to cultivate. But it is also the same word that is used in the Hebrew as an act of worship. So literally Adam's work in the job he was given in the garden and placed down there where God worked with him in the cool of the day. So if God is walking with Adam in the cool of the day, so we have this realm called Eden and in the middle of Eden, we have a garden and in the garden of Eden, Adam and God walk together. Hmm. This is the merging of heaven and earth. Right? And there's a there's a serpent there, which is another spiritual being. So this is, you know, Jacob's ladder, so to speak, when he sees, you know, heavenly beings ascending and descending. You know. This is the merging of heaven and earth. This is Eden. And so the work that Adam does there, while it may be work, it may be to till and to tend, to cultivate and to keep, to take care of, that care is also an act of worship. The other word that is used there, right? Usually used to tend or to keep. Is shamar in the Hebrew. And again, that means to protect, to take care of, or to hedge about, you know. And so you have these different versions of like God brooding over people or putting a hedge of protection around the presence. So that word, in addition to 
keeping or tending to could also mean to protect or to be in the presence of. And so Adam, that's the command the Lord is given to Adam. And so it says, yeah, the Lord took the man or the Adan and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it or to till it and to tend it or to cultivate it and to keep it to Chabad and Shavar it. Saying, you, sh- you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But anyway, that was the work that Adam was given. He was given the work in the Garden of Eden where heaven and earth meet, which then becomes what the temple is supposed to represent, the merging of the heaven and earth, the merging of heaven and earth, the temple. And then later Christ comes and says, oh, we're done with the temple system. I am the temple. I am the presence of God. And as Paul says later, hey, um, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Heaven and earth have merged again, and it's in your body. Hooray. That's good news, people. But mankind was never cursed. You are not cursed right now in this moment. But Adam, given two things, right? He's put in the garden and God tells him, hey, work it, keep it, till it, tend it, worship, and enjoy, eat of everything in here except that one little thing. Got it? Okay, good. So the ground is cursed, and the ground is cursed because Adam has reached outside of the duty that God has given him to do. He has reached for knowledge. He has reached for wisdom. He has listened to a voice that's other than God. He has chosen what was good in his own eyes, but it was not good in the eyes of God. Again, God said, till this, tend this. Instead of tilling it, instead of tending it, instead of worshiping and protecting and providing care for his environment, he reached for something else. That's why the ground is cursed. But look with me real quick. We'll tie this all together. We get into the, the red letters of Jesus because everything Jesus does, everything he teaches refers back to these old stories and they're riffing on the same patterns and then all he does is invert them into something new to say like, oh, y'all all missed the point. Y'all thought these were pointing to this legal system. You thought this was pointing to a political revolution, but in fact, it was pointing to an inward state That is one in me, but in each and every one of you. So John 3, 16, we all know this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We're going to continue for a second, but I just want to point out there. That what Jesus is riffing on right here 
isn't a story from the Old Testament where Abraham goes into the wilderness with his son Isaac. And Isaac's like, what are we doing in this big journey? And Abraham says, we're going to sacrifice for God. We're going to go offer a sacrifice. And Isaac says, but we don't, we don't have a sacrifice. Where's the lamb? Where's the goat? Where's the cow we're going to sacrifice? And all Abraham tells him is, um, God will provide. Well, later, nothing has appeared to offer as a sacrifice. So Abraham puts Isaac up on the altar and is raising the knife, ready to kill him. And then there's a lamb or a goat bleeding in the bushes, and he kills the goat and offers that instead. But he's saying God loves you so much that he would literally put the thing that is most precious to him and actually go through with it. That's what he's referring to here. Um, You know, and there's this parallel in offering eternal life because Abraham in their tradition was the one through which the seed of promise would happen and their generations would be as much as the stars in the sky. So you have an example of eternal life there. If Abraham actually kills Isaac, where do his generations stop? If Abraham actually kills Isaac, Christ never comes through that line. Interesting stuff, right? But people read this and uh, they they put it on a t-shirt. They put it on a hat and they don't read the next verse. We use this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And brother, I believe that. Bless your heart. I'm going to heaven when I die. And that's never was supposed to be the point. This is not about having your fire insurance. Because what does going to heaven when you die, what good does that mean if you're living in hell on earth right now or your neighbor is living in hell right now? It was never supposed to be about that. So stop being so egocentric and egotistical with your salvation. This is literally life and death. It's also supposed to be fun, but I'll get off my soapbox for a little bit and let's continue. But we forget about the next verse and we forget about the whole context into which this thing is written. Um, Verse 17, for God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. Christ did not come to judge you, to judge anyone. He came to save the world. And then that already happened. So what does that mean? By extension, the world has already been saved. That includes mankind. That includes any curse you believe that mankind had, even though mankind did not have a curse put on them. It was just consequences for bad behavior. And even then, God let them off on a bunch of the consequences anyway. That's called grace. That's called mercy. Okay, God did not send Jesus into the world to judge, but to save the world. But how does this work? Okay, he who believes in him is not judged. And this goes back to Adam in the fall. This goes back to why the ground is cursed, why there's enmity between the seed of Eve and the serpent. 
you know, these dark spiritual forces and then her ability to be fruitful in her womb. He who believes, this is verse 18, in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And that's basically saying like, okay, like if I believe that this is true, if I believe what God says about me is actually true. If I'm Adam in the garden, I believe, hey, if I till and tend the garden and you teach me your wisdom and I don't reach out here for this thing that looks cool, but really is not. If I believe in that, like I'm not going to experience any judgment because I'm in perfection. I'm in wholeness. I'm whole and complete. I'm a full living being. But if I do not believe that, Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to reach outside of myself for something that is good in my own eyes, but God knows is not good. And then what happens? I am subject to the judgment that I have made because I did not judge as God has judged. God said, this is good, not that. And when you reach out for that thing, then you are subject to the judgment that you just made and that judgment comes back on you, whether that's in a given circumstance, you're leaning for protection and security on the wrong about the wrong thing, or whether that's in how you see a person. Here's a little trick. Here's a little story that I got to tell. If you look at someone bad, man, you're living in hell. But what I mean is how you see someone else is actually a reflection of how you see yourself. That's a free one. That's in your Bible too. Verse 19. And this is the judgment that the light is come into the world. That's the judgment. Hey, the light is here. We've been stumbling around in a dark room for centuries, bumping into chairs, tripping over each other, spraining our ankles and stuff, knocking our heads into the walls. Boop, turned on the light switch. Now everything is clear. Verse 19 again, that the light is coming to the world, but men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. So you turned on the light and you saw what was really in the room, but you ran from it because being in the dark was more comfortable. Like Adam, Adam was afraid. Lord's coming to find him in Eden after he's eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God saying, Adam, where are you? My son, where are you? And Adam is hiding. God finds him. Adam, why are you hiding? I was afraid because I was naked. Adam, dear boy, who told you you were naked? Okay, this is what happens when you turn on the lights to people who have chosen not to be in the light. In Adam's case, Choosing not to till and tend, but reach out for something else. Cain, choosing to kill his brother rather than to rule over his anger. Nadab and Abihu, instead of being thankful for the gift that they've been given to be stewards of their nation and representatives of God for their nation, even though it might've been boring and long work to do, they decide to get drunk and then try to go to work drunk and do things their own way. 
So verse 20, for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. It's a lot going on there. The fact of the matter is, it's like the the curse is over. There actually was never any curse to begin with, not on humanity. Again, cursed the ground and then cursed the serpent, the spiritual being that used its powers to manipulate mankind. That curse is over, people. It really is. And I hope you have felt some of that in my teachings and my ramblings today as we went over that. Again, if you have any questions, comments, concerns about this, yeah, get at me or send me send me what was confusing. We can do another episode of this or we can sit down, have a coffee, and hash it out. But uh, until next time, y'all, Peace and blessings to you from the Most High. May the Lord keep you and cultivate you. It's your boy, Monk, and I'm out.